Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here once again with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. Back from another dental adventure. (laughs) This time it's you, not me. (laughs) I I think this is the last one for a while. In fact, I know it is because I don't have any money left. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're in the sort of post-Supreme Court uh, haze here where the, the court has ended its term and the uh, the media is breathless about many of the cases, and we want to, you know, give you our take on a bunch of them, or, or really, Keel's take. Um, my job's to drag it out of him, as you know, he's very reluctant to offer his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we had said, well, maybe we'll talk about the affirmative action case today, and we had intended to. Uh, so, two hundred and thirty-nine pages. Of reading later, uh, yours truly realizes that we're going to wait till next week for that one. And the reason is because we're going to have a, a very exciting guest. Um, very exciting, who really is going to be able to bring a distinctive expertise to the question. Right. So the, the former dean of admissions at, at Yale and a distinguished member of the faculty, uh, Jeff Brenzel, is going to join us next week to talk about the affirmative action cases. And the former dean of admissions, yes, yes, yes. Who, know, who knows, you know, how the sausage is really made. Yeah, and of course, and he, he hasn't been the dean for a little while, so I think he's more from the, the Gruder uh, period. Um, so I think it'll actually be quite interesting to, to get his take uh, from that point of view as well. He's a little less, you know, conflicted. Like if we got, if we had the current dean, who dean uh, Jeremiah Quinlan on, uh, you know, he'd be very constrained by the fact that he's, you know, serving as the dean. And one of the many issues, actually, that we're going to talk about with diversity and race and admissions is historically black colleges. And, and Jeff is also, in fact, a trustee of Morehouse, which ah. is one of the our great historically black colleges in Atlanta. Uh, it's the alma mater, as our audience will know, of MLK, among many, many others. He has all sorts of very interesting and distinctive things to contribute. So lots to talk about. Um, We also will have a special guest to continue the conversation about the case that we're going to start talking about today. So we've lined up some all sorts of um, great guests for the next um, few weeks. Yeah. And before we get started, though, I do, you know, speaking of of Yale, I do want to take a moment um, to call the audience's attention to a passing today of a former president of Yale, uh, ben O. Schmidt, and uh, someone that uh, Akil is very acquainted with. And we'll be talking more about about uh, about President Schmidt and uh, his career, um, his very, very varied career, a very interesting career. Great man. Um, double Yaley, in fact, as am I, as was Guido Calabresi, for example, whom we profiled recently. Ben O. Schmidt is Yale College, Yale Law School. He clerked for... Earl Warren um, wrote every sentence, basically, of a, a very important case called Loving versus Virginia, uh, striking down miscegenation laws, except the last paragraph that Warren added about a right to marry, which would later become Obergefell, a great constitutional law scholar, dean of the Columbia Law School, a scholar of Reconstruction about some of the things we're going to talk about, especially um, Reconstruction and race when we talk about the affirmative action case. He later became president of Yale. He was a very dear friend to me. Um, he helped me in all sorts of ways. We did all sorts of things together. We were both trustees 
at the New York Historical Society. Andy, I think actually we, I'd like to do an episode at some point about Benno, the same way we did episodes about Walter Dellinger and Telford Taylor and Hugo Black, like some of uh, those others, like Hugo Black, like Walter Dellinger, like Philip Bobbitt, for that matter, and Charles Black. Benno was a product of the South. In certain ways, the family is a Texas family, very liberal family. My heart especially goes out today to Tom Schmidt, Benno's nephew, who was my protege, is my protege, was my head TA, is a distinguished professor of constitutional law in his own right, as, uh, was Neil's right, Neil Katyal's right hand in practice for many years, um, was my right hand at Yale Law School and at Columbia Law School, where I have been an adjunct professor from time to time. And Thomas now himself a distinguished constitutional law professor at Columbia. He, he's the one who told me about his uncle's passing peacefully in his sleep, apparently. Uh, but Benno was a very great man. One final thing, Andy, we'll talk about it more. Benno was a great MC. He, uh, some of our audience may remember him as the master of ceremonies of a wonderful PBS series called The Constitution, The Delicate Balance. He wasn't the only person who MC'd that. Lots, we did lots of panels together where, where he moderated, and he very skillfully steered me, I was often the color commentator, through the issues, just the way you do, Andy. And it's, it's a real art to be able to do that. And, and Benno was as good as, as there is at that, and, and, and so are you. And my heart goes out to his family and especially to, to Tom, um, who's very close to me. And we will return to this issue. I, I want to do justice to a very great man, a very great uh, person who, who lived greatly in the law and more generally. And was, yes, the president of, of Yale. I think maybe even right at the time that, that I got tenure, I'd have to, I'll have to look up the date, but, but, but an important person in my life and an exceedingly generous person. Okay, so again, our condolences to the family. Um, so back to, the, to uh, the Constitution, and today we're going to be talking about the case of 303 Creative LLC uh, versus Aubrey Elenis et al. That case has been colloquially known as 303 or 303 Creative. It's somewhat reminiscent of the wedding cake case from a, a few years ago. Um, it, it has to do with public accommodation law, and it also has to do with protected classes and things like that. Anyway, it, it's worth uh, looking at the facts uh, of the case as presented by the court. But I think that to some extent about free speech versus conduct, like speech versus conduct. Um, but there are other things that are other questions that are brought up by the the particulars of the case, which I think are interesting, um, that we may talk about. Things like stipulations, the role of stipulations in a case. Um, what about monopolies? You know, there's a lot of things that this case uh, brings up that are interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, that doesn't mean we don't want to bury the lead. Um, so let's talk about what the case actually is about. So this woman, Lori Smith, um, has a business, 303 Creative. It's an LLC. And uh, as described in the opinion of the court, I'll just read the, the facts here. It says, Lori Smith offers website and graphic design, marketing advice, and social media management services. Recently, she decided to expand her offerings to include services for couples seeking websites for their weddings. As she envisions it, 
Her websites will provide couples with text, graphic arts, and videos to, quote, celebrate and, quote, convey the, quote, details of their, quote, unique love story. Uh, And I'm quoting from the petition for cert there. And the websites will discuss things like how the couple met, explain their backgrounds, families, future plans, provide information about the upcoming wedding. And the text, according to the opinion here, it says the, the text and graphics on the websites will be original, customized, and tailored creations. It says the websites will be expressive in nature, designed to communicate a particular message. Viewers will know, it says, that the websites are her original artwork because the name of the company she owns and operates by herself will be displayed on every web page. Okay, so those are, are some of the facts, um, uh, sort of background here. And so what's the lawsuit about? So it says here that, well, she laid the groundwork for the venture, but she hasn't actually put it into into uh, operation, this part of the business. She had a previous business that, where she did websites, but, but these wedding websites, this is something new. So, and she says that the reason that she hasn't done it is because she's not going to put expressions on the website that contradict her own views. And she says she never has in any of her other websites. Um, and she worries, it says, that Colorado will force her to do this. She sa- it says here in the opinion that she worries that if she enters the wedding website business, the state will force her to convey messages inconsistent with her belief that marriages should be reserved to unions between one man and one woman. Okay. So she's worried that um, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, C-A-D-A, um, will be enforced against her um, so she sought an injunction to prevent the state from forcing her to create wedding websites celebrating marriages that defy her own beliefs. Some facts are she hasn't made a website. She hasn't started the business, that part of the business. Um, and the reason is that she's concerned, she says, that she's concerned that Colorado will compel her to do so. Or... I suppose doesn't quite say this, but I guess the other thing that she's worried about is that maybe they can't compel her to do it, you know, physically, but that she could be fined, you know, or suffer some other, you know, prosecution or penalty. If she doesn't do it, she could get a cease and desist order. Maybe she would invest money into the business and then she wouldn't be able to operate it. You know, so there's, there's a number of things that she's concerned about. Okay. So that's, that's uh, some of the facts now. So what about this law? So the law defines uh, a public accommodation uh, to include, according to what the court, the court says, is almost every public-facing business in the state. Um, it has a clause called the Accommodation Clause, and it prohibits a public accommodation from denying the full and equal enjoyment of its goods and services to any customer based upon race, creed, disability, sexual orientation, or other statutorily enumerated trait. And then it can be enforced by state officials or private citizens. Okay, so there we have some facts. So uh, in coverage here, um, there's been a number, well, let me start off by asking you about this. What about about this fact that she hasn't actually started this part of the business yet? 
um, there's been a lot of criticism in the in the media. Oh, this is a fake case. She didn't uh, actually have any customers. She doesn't actually have hasn't actually done any websites. Um, is that uh, is that a legitimate complaint, Akil, or is this an appropriate usage of the court system? And you know, is this an Article Three court question? She's a citizen. She's claiming rights against the government. The government has a policy in place that seems to be very hostile to what she wants to do. Uh, She's not hallucinating about that. And especially if you look at what Colorado, in fact, did to the bigoted baker way back when. Um, I'm constitutionally with the bigoted baker. We're going to talk about that. The wedding cake guy. I'm never going to order a cake from him, but he has a right to make the cakes um, he wants with the messages he wants on the cakes. He's a cake artist, and I think he has a right to his art. And I'm never going to buy a cake from him, but I think he has a right to his artistic vision. And Colorado went after him good and hard, She's and she's not imagining that. And if Colorado, which is the government, with the coercive powers of the government, and Constitution is about rights against the government— If the government says you're just hallucinating, you made it up, they could send her a letter saying, of course, under the facts, as you have sent them to us, we give you an opinion letter that nothing that you propose to do would run afoul of our understanding of the the laws and the rules that we're going to enforce. So if, if Colorado wants to avoid the whole thing, they can avoid the whole thing by telling her that they didn't tell her any of that. Um, I'll say it a different way. That's just the common sense of the thing. One person against the course of power of the government and the government, you know, if it doesn't want to litigate this, can uh, has all sorts of resources at its disposal to make it clear it's not going to go after her. And they didn't do that. Point two, this is more doctrine speak. It's a repackaging of that basic common sense point. Because a lot of times, you know, law is kind of commonsensical. Lawyers come up with all sorts of jargon so they can charge money, you know, for their expertise. I know that never happens in medicine. That's why there's all this Latin, you see. We rightly have a concern about laws that have a so-called chilling effect on expression. We don't want people self-censoring. We don't want people refraining from engaging in activity and in expressive activity and in expression, in um, words, written or oral, other kinds of message communication. I think burning a flag, you see, is expressive. Yes, it might involve a match. It might involve certain physical actions, but it actually is conveying a meaning You see, what what makes a flag a flag is the message on it, as opposed to just a piece of cloth. um, We are rightly concerned about the chilling of expression by folks who are worried that if they if they express something, they're going to be punished. And so we have special rules in the First Amendment about that, special standing rules where we're especially solicitous of these kinds of claims, lest people be chilled. We talked about standing earlier. You know, at what point, you know, have you been harmed, for example? Am I harmed when you hit my bicycle, hit me on my bicycle? But are you harmed even before that when someone is driving drunk on the road in a way that risks hitting you on the bicycle? And now because you're worried about that, you don't go on the road, okay? And is that 
harm, that you're being chilled, you're being deterred from going on the road with a bicycle, something that the law recognizes. At what point do we actually say your rights begin to be violated by what someone else, an individual of the government is doing or threatening to do or creating a risk of doing? And we are especially, we might be concerned about deterring people from um, using their bicycles on a bike path. But we're especially concerned about deterring people from speaking because we think speech is something that has a strong affirmative value. And we want people to get the message out. If other people disagree, then we think that actually the best response is more speech. This is the philosophy of our First Amendment and lots of cases implementing it. So I think there was nothing wrong with what she did. And if instead she had started to do things or say things and then got prosecuted, she'd have, and this is a third point, what we call in law a younger versus Harris problem, because she's going to be prosecuted in a state proceeding. And once that starts, she could never actually easily jump the track and get over to a federal court that might be more sympathetic to her point of view, because Initially, she'd have to go through a state administrative procedure by these bureaucrats who often don't. Uh, and, and these, and we have rights against these bureaucrats, against the government. She'd have to go through all of that, spend a lot of money, and then she'd have to litigate typically under a set of federal courts doctrines in state uh, court and then state trial court, state appellate court, state Supreme Court. And these are all people, I don't mean to disparage them. I have many, many close friends who are state court judges and justices, but they are paid by the state. They're paid by the government and they're being asked, in effect, in in this sort of litigation to rule against the hand that feeds them. Um, uh, and she might well prefer to have this litigated in federal court. And if she wants to get it litigated in federal court, she was well advised to actually do what she did, which is bring a kind of anticipatory action. And it's not unripe. It's totally ripe. She's ready, willing, and able. She is raring to go. And the only reason she's not going is this law that she's worried about, and she's not hallucinating. You and I have talked about the companion case to Roe versus Wade, the Doe case. So um, we might actually yeah, talk I do about wanna, that. I do want to get into that. But before we leave what you just said, because you just threw a lot at the audience. And you and I have talked about the younger abstention, you know, in the past. But, um, you know, that's... if. Somebody we haven't had, done an episode on younger abstention. Well, maybe when we were younger, but uh, okay. <laughs> but I, I I just you know a quick way to see this you know the so this business about chilling effect and why you want to get into federal court. I mean, a lot of this happened in the you know came up in the South in the sixties. Um, right. So suppose you know you're in the South in the sixties and there's some law that's passed you know by some state that's that you know is making it hard for you to you know, picket in front of, you know, the, the, the schoolhouse or something like that. It's called Shuttlesworth versus Birmingham. They wouldn't let MLK's allies get a parade permit on Easter Sunday. Right. So but, you don't um, want to have to, you know, first get arrested and then and get beaten and then have to go through all the Alabama courts and lose at every level before you can ever get a federal court to hear anything you have to say. And that's, and that's what, what happened in Shuttlesworth versus Birmingham. Actually, they picketed first because they because they were they, the state court had issued an injunction saying you can't pick it. They thought this is improper, an improper action. It's a prior restraint. So they, you know, they protested or they paraded anyway, but they did so in violation of 
this state order. And the court said, oh, you can't do that. You had to first go to the court and say, a state judge, pretty pleased with you actually undo this injunction. Um, and then if they say no, we have to go all the way up through the state court system and then maybe, you know, and then petition for certiorari and good luck, you, you know. Instead, that's because they actually, in effect, engaged in activity that they thought, or expressive activity that they thought they were allowed to, but what, because actually they they acted first, they were stuck in a state court system and, and all sorts of technical issues of, um, it's called the collateral bar rule and all the rest that once an injunction is issued, you can't challenge it collaterally by violating it. All sorts of technicalities. I don't want to go, I don't want to get into all of them, but she was um, well advised, well lawyered to actually make clear that she's raring to go. She's ready, willing, and able. It's not hypothetical on her side. She has the business up and running. But she is genuinely concerned that they're going to go after her if she peeps. And so she wants to get federal judicial ruling first that she has a right to peep. To finish this thought. So she she goes to federal district court and she loses and she goes to the 10th Circuit and she loses. And then she goes to the Supreme Court and she wins. Um, but, uh, and she, but, but I'm saying her odds were probably just in general. I don't know a lot about these specific judges, but generically, this is what I was taught in federal courts by the great Owen Fiss, whom I've talked about many times, my, my mentor and what I teach in a course called federal courts. I, I was hired by Yale to teach federal courts. I've taught it about 25 times. I'm teaching again this year after a bit of a hiatus. In general, at least we, this is, and this is what you were talking about, the Warren Court, the, the classical idea is on average, you, if you're challenging a state law, your, your odds are probably better in a federal court whose judges are not actually officers of the state government. Um, they're picked by, paid by the federal government. And if your claim is a federal constitutional claim against a state law, you know, we used to say, on average, you're going to be better off at a federal court. But at the very least, you should be allowed to choose. And she really wanted to go to federal court. And if she had acted first, if she had peeped first, she might have gotten stuck in state court. And I don't think she should have to be stuck in state court. I mean, there's a lot about this case which which seems like very groomed. In other words, that this is a case, almost a, a, a case which, you know, she's asking for trouble in a way. Um, and part of it is, you know, there's a lot of stipulations. We'll get into this later. It seems, you know, but anyway. Um, and I would just say on that, Colorado is the one that's asking for trouble. They're the ones who passed along in the first place. Not all states have laws at all like this. I actually think it's a tyrannical law in various ways that we will talk about. They started it. You know, all she wanted to do candidly, let's just be clear about this, is to be left alone. Um, and the long arm of the law is reaching out to tell her what she can and can't say. Now, the dissenters is only just telling what she can and can't do. And I'm saying here to do is to say to say is to do. We're talking about expressive conduct that actually is about a message that they're trying to shut down. They're trying to Colorado shut down a certain message. And truthfully, I don't like her message. You know, I believe in same sex marriage. I believe in gay rights emphatically. And I'm never going to actually hire her to do anything for me, because if she's big, if she's not willing to to do a website for, for my same sex marriage friends, if 
that's not good enough. They're not good enough for her and their wedding. Well, then my business is not good enough. She's not good enough for my business. But that's my private choice as a private consumer. That's not the long arm of government telling her she can't, you know, who she, you know, what she can and can't say on her website. So just backing up for a moment, um, you, know, we, you mentioned the, the Roe versus Wade case. And um, I actually asked you about this the other day when we were talking about this. Like, oh, this reminded me of something we talked about with Roe, that there was a companion case to Roe. It was with Doe rather than yes. Roe. Um, and in that case, um, why don't you tell us about the case rather than have Well, mine. Jane Roe is someone who has been pregnant But um, she was prevented from getting an abortion legally, and she brings a lawsuit. But by the time the Supreme Court hears the case, the pregnancy has terminated. Oh, my God, that's mootness on appeal. Oh, that's Moore versus Harper, don't you see? The court allows her case to proceed. But it was actually Roe et al. versus Wade, and Wade is a stand-in for Texas. And the et al. involves two different sets of, of additional plaintiffs. One were the does. The does have never been pregnant. They're a married couple. They're engaging in conjugal relations as a married couple, but, and they're using birth control, um, but this abortion, uh, this law prohibiting abortion comes along and they're worried. I have been told by a doctor that I'm at great risk, a medical risk if I become pregnant. Um, Now, even though we're trying to- I think if if she goes to, if she takes a pregnancy to term- Pregnancy to term. This is not about contraception. It's about abortion. Sort of abortion as contraception. So, um, but she's worried. Even though they're using contraception, it might fail. And if so, she's going to be unable to legally procure an abortion. And the does bring a lawsuit. And and the court says, oh, nothing's happened to you yet. And they're saying, what are you talking about? This is really affecting our conjugal relations. You know, there might be certain things that we're not doing that we might like to do as a married couple because of this, you know. And, and the court says, well, apart from, you know, the impact on your current marital happiness, you know, you don't seem to have anything like, apart from the shooting, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? I mean, people get married in, in order to, to be intimate. And the court didn't see it. But this is the question, like, when, at what point you cognize a harm that the law is printing. They're not hallucinating that Texas abortion law. In, but now there was a third person in Roe versus Wade, Dr. Halford. Technically, in Roe, uh, in the case of Roe, the law did not actually punish the uh, person procuring an abortion. The woman in question, the law punished the medical, the healthcare provider who actually in the statute, I believe, is referred to as a he. So the law is actually operating on the doctor. Enter Dr. Halford. He would like to bring a lawsuit. He is a licensed physician who's competent to perform reproductive services, and he would like to do so. But he's afraid that if he does so, he's going to be prosecuted by Texas. And he's not hallucinating. They've gone after other people, okay? He's not hallucinating. But he made a mistake. The mistake that he made was he actually performed an abortion. Um, now he thinks the laws are illegal, uh, laws are unconstitutional, but he's stuck defending. He's prosecuted and he's raising his constitutional rights and the rights of his patients as um, a defense, as a shield to the prosecution. And he's stuck in state court. And for all the reasons we talked about, state courts are likely to be less sympathetic to him. But he's state trial court, state appellate court, state Supreme Court. Now, he tries to get into federal court saying, "Okay, listen, I realize I may be on the hook 
you know, in a certain way for the abortion that I have already performed, but I'd like to perform one tomorrow and the day after that. And so I'd like to go into federal court in my capacity as a doctor who would like to perform future abortions. Okay, and even if I win in my state court proceeding, it might just be that the jury acquits me and that doesn't give me any piece of paper that says I have a right to do this tomorrow. Or I win even with uh, uh, judges saying you're right, but they're not going to give me an injunction against the law in the future. Most will give me an acquittal. You know, that's nice. You know, but what I want is a piece of paper from a court. Um, that I can rely on saying I can perform an abortion tomorrow and the day after that. And there's no way I can get that as a defendant in a state court proceeding. So I want to go over to federal court and get a declaratory judgment or an injunction. And Roe versus Wade said, oh, the case is, oh, no, you can't get that. We, we don't see the difference between you as a doctor who's performed a past abortion and you as a doctor who wants to perform abortions in the future. And this was utterly obtuse on the part of the court. And as a Fed course person, I'm reading all this stuff before I even get, these are all the technicalities before I even get to the merits. And I'm thinking, oh, Justice Blackman is screwing the pooch left, right, and center. He's really getting it wrong on the does. Apart from, you know, your marital, uh, an intrusion on your marital happiness, what have you got? Oh my God, under Griswold versus Connecticut, you've got a lot. That's, that's what the privacy right is essentially about, the right of married couples to engage in um, intimate conduct in, in their home. So he screws the pooch, and this is the, the court as a whole, on the does saying, oh, no, 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 not yet. And he, and he screws the pooch on Halford saying, oh, 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 um, uh, too late. Not yet, not yet, not late, oh, too late. Okay. And this is what my friend Owen Fisk calls the, the, the younger squeeze play, in fact. Okay. So he messes up completely. This is before he's even begun to talk about abortion. I'm thinking, they, these judges, you know, oh, maybe they're not the geniuses that I, I thought they were. And then this is before they even start talking about abortion. But you see, Mootness on appeal. Oh, that's Moore versus Harper. And they heard Jane Rowe's case, even though her term, her pregnancy terminated sometime during the pendency of litigation. And you're seeing how here the, the issue of ripeness and um, what are called abstention. Are you stuck in state court or can you actually litigate things in federal court? Very relevant to 303. And I'm very sympathetic to 303 here, just as I was sympathetic to the does. And to Dr. Halford, at least in their ability to get to court, to get to federal court, to get a federal court to rule on it. Okay, so that's, you know, that's a lot. But I think it's it's quite interesting in this case does. But I haven't seen discussion about this anywhere other than, oh, it's not ripe. Oh, she's it's a fake case, you know. But uh, so this is obviously gone well, well beyond that. So well done. Um, okay. Yes. So now, Which is Andy, our, our polite way of basically beating our chest and saying, truthfully, we're going to give you serious legal analysis of a sort that you don't get elsewhere. And it's not, you know, just legal mumbo jumbo and gobbledygook. I, I think, you know, a lay person can understand uh, basically the gist of all of that, even though, yeah, I, I, talk, I said declaratory judgment. I talked about injunctions. I talked about younger um, abstention, mootness, ripeness. You know, those are sort of technical issues, but a chilling effect. But I kind of explain what they're all about. Okay. Now, as to the, the substance of the case, um, you know, you've already sort of indicated that you uh, have some sympathy with, uh, with Ms. Smith here. Um, by the way, this on is, the law, you know, and her bigotry, not at all. Right, I'm never going to I'm never going to hire her. OK, so 
why is it then that why why is this the case? I mean, why is it that she? I mean, public accommodations laws are among the great heroes of the civil rights movement, right? You know, you 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 know you can't deny service to a, a black customer at the lunch counter. You know, you can't you can't uh, you know everybody has to be able to go to school. I mean, there's a lot of of equal access that we celebrate in the law. So why is this different? Um, why is it that you say that no, in this case, um, the, the, the state is wrong to require this proprietor of this business to serve all comers? Because this involves core expression. You can say it involves conduct, but it involves conduct that's inextricably intertwined with expression. So it's not like getting a pizza or going to the bike shop and, and get, being able to, to, to buy a bicycle or buy a clock or buy a chair, which are not intrinsically expressive items. A dog can sit in a chair. A dog can eat a pizza. A dog cannot understand a website. You see, these are about expression. And, and, you, and they say public accommodation, but it cannot be the case that simply by entering the marketplace, I become the slave of the state. And, and they get to basically project their, make me be a mouthpiece for their message. I am not a billboard. I am an individual with rights against the government. So let's imagine, for example, I'm a rabbi. And I am available to do circumcisions, okay? Um, but I actually only want to, I'm a moil. And you don't have to be a rabbi to be a moil, and not all rabbis probably are moils, but okay. But, um, and, and Andy, do you remember that Saturday Night Live fake ad, Poifect? Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, we'll, yes. we'll, we'll let the, uh, the audience in on this in, in just a minute. It's about how smooth the ride is right. in certain car. Okay. Um, but I'm a moil. And I own and I'm offering services and to the public in the sense that, you know, I will I will take a modest fee for my services, but I only want to do it for people in my faith tradition. And maybe that's not even all Jews. Maybe that's all conservative Jews or Orthodox Jews. I am a rabbi. I perform weddings, but I don't want to do interfaith weddings. I only want to do weddings among people in, in my faith tradition. The Saturday Night Live commercial, just since I since I mentioned it, Andy, there was a, a an actual commercial about just how smooth the ride was. I think it was in Lincoln Continental. You're in the back seat, you're, and, and the car is going over all sorts of bumps and potholes. This jeweler, it's actually I think a Jewish jeweler, and he has to make you know a, a cut in a rough diamond, and mm-hmm. it's a very very expensive rock, and and if he cuts it wrong. He'll shatter the thing and, and it will be a ruin. But, and, and the car is, is going along at 40 miles an hour and you see that the tires going up and down. But because of the shock absorbers and, and the smoothness of this, you know, he doesn't feel a thing and he, and he, he, he slices the, the rock and, and pronounces perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the spoof ad is now it's a boil performing, you know, a circumcision. The unkindest cut of all. You know, to, uh, <laughs> the most unkindest cut of all. Absolutely. Yes. But once again, perfect. Right. Well, okay. I think that the, actually the, uh, the wedding one is a good example, be the interfaith wedding, because let's say you had a, uh, you know, two Jews that were getting married and the rabbi does a ceremony. And then let's say you have, you know, a Jewish man and let's say a non-Jewish 
woman, and but they want the exact same wedding. Yes, it could be word for exactly. word, exactly the same, because the man yes. is Jewish, right? Well, yes. I, I know that there are rabbis that won't do that because my rabbi wouldn't do it. Um, in fact, the rabbi at my temple, he's retired now, but he would not perform an interfaith ceremony. This is a reform temple. So so anyway, so he was no fanatic, but but he and, would and not now do you it. see why this is a totalitarian in a way. Why? And and since I mentioned my dear friend Benno Schmidt, Benno to repeat was Earl Warren's law clerk. He was a brilliant uh, student undergraduate at Yale College on the hockey team. I think they may have even won a championship that year or something. But he went to Yale Law School, did brilliantly, clerked on the Supreme Court for the, the great Chief Justice, Earl Warren, as in the Warren Court, and was tasked with writing the first draft of an opinion called Loving versus Virginia, which is about the right to marry someone of a different race. Virginia said you can't have interracial marriages. And I actually did an event with Benno where he, you know, this is all public now. A lot of times clerks are kind of under a cone of silence, at least for several, many years after the opinion. But, but the statute of limitations is running. He said, Earl Warren gave me the, the task of writing the uh, first draft. He actually, once I wrote it up, changed not a single thing except the last paragraph where he himself said, in addition to this law being racially discriminatory, it violates a fundamental right to marry. And that fundamental right to marry language is going to become important in Obergefell. Why am I mentioning all this? The government can't prevent two people from getting married just because they're a different race. These are rights against the government. But an individual is, has a right to be bigoted, uh, an individual pastor or priest, and, and as a private person has a right to say, listen, you know, you can get married. You have a right against the government, but I don't want to do that. Now, again, if I'm that, I think that person is a bigot. I'm, I'm you know, not going to um, be uh, um, giving that person any of my um, business. But let's take Obergefell, which builds on loving versus Virginia. And now we connect very directly to 303 Creative. I have always been a huge champion of the Obergefell decision. And it's very similar to what you said before. If a man and a woman can get married, well, what happens? Why should it be different if the man undergoes sex reassignment therapy and becomes a woman? You know, why shouldn't Patrick, excuse me, as a man becomes Patricia as a woman? Why shouldn't that very same person be allowed to, to marry Jane? So I think Obergefell is easy and right. If a man and a woman can get married, two women should be allowed to get married, two men should be allowed to get married. But these are rights against the government. And Obergefell is easy and obvious because the government was treating people differently just because of their gonads. Their, we might say the way they are born, their, their gender assignment at birth, because they happen to be born um, male or female, or at least that's what the birth certificate says. And I think this is birth discrimination, birth inequality. I think Obergefell is clearly right, and it builds on loving. If a white person can marry another white person, why can't a black person marry that that white person? Just because they're born with darker skin? So Obergefell follows from loving. Obergefell is as to sex and sexual orientation, what loving was as to race, but to repeat for the benefit of my dear friend, Justice Sotomayor, and 
the others in dissent. My friend, Justice Kagan, I've never met, I think, Justice Jackson. The rights that we have to equality are rights against the government. The government can't do this, but private people are allowed to. Let me just identify. I think they're allowed to choose to marry someone only of their own race, someone only of their own religion, only of the opposite sex. So they're allowed to choose whom they marry. Okay. And I would say they're also allowed if they have an escort service or something and they're out there taking money for it, they're allowed to make certain choices because they're human beings with privacy rights, but also the people who are performing these ceremonies, the private people, not not, not a, a government civil servant, a private person, a celebrant, a priest or a rabbi in, in many traditions, they are allowed to say, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. Okay, I'll do this, I'll, I'll perform, I'll, I'll do a ceremony for two Jews, but not an interfaith ceremony, and no, I just don't do non-Jewish things. Um, so do you feel then that to be bigoted. So do you feel then that public accommodation laws in general are misplaced or wrongheaded or do you not feel that at all, not at all because most of them don't apply to anything that's intrinsically expressive that way and now we get to things that Justice Sotomayor does talk about and and, and she's in the dissent writing for Kagan and Jackson. And in the majority, it's an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, four or five others, so six to three. And Andy, I've told you this offline many, many times, but I'm not sure I've actually shared with my audience my my theory of public accommodations law. And it's basically rooted in a vision of human existence. So our audience has heard me talk about the real world versus the court world, okay? And we have rules for the real world. And in the real world, we're trying to just coordinate among all sorts of people who have different visions of, of life. And, and ideally, we have to avoid them harming each other, and we want them to be able to cooperate in all sorts of ways. So if you and I meet on a road, you don't get to poke me in the nose or kill me or rape me or enslave me. You can't treat me as a beast of the field. Kant would say we're both part of a kingdom of ends and you have to treat me with a certain sort of respect. Okay. Now I'm on the road, but I'm a human being and human beings have certain basic human needs. I have to eat at a certain point. And if I don't, I have a kid with me and the kid has to eat. I have to eat. I have to drink. I have to poop. And boy, when you have to poop, you have to poop. Sometimes um, I have to pee. I'm, I'm just being really, you know, honest here about what humans, humanity is all about. Now, public accommodations laws begin with the idea that you don't have time to shop around. You know, when you when you got to go, you got to go. And so there are certain entities. Technically, they're private. They're not owned by the government, but they serve all comers. They are public houses, public inns. We call them pubs. And because you don't have time to shop around in extremists when it comes to pooping and peeing and eating and drinking, and I would say sleeping too, they have in effect in the moment a monopoly and they have to take all comers. And part of the reason why let's take sleeping is I don't want you actually sleeping on the road because someone can come along and take advantage of you. I don't want you sleeping on the road because maybe you're a bad guy and you're a highwayman and I want to have kind of curfew rules so that people get off the road at a certain point because I don't want them skulking around at 3 a.m. wanting to, to, to mug someone or jump them or, or rob them or rape them or kill them or, or, or what have you. So we want people off 
the road at night. We want them sleeping in a room with a lock on the door. We we want places to be open so that when you eat when you need to eat, you can find a place to eat or drink or poop or pee or sleep. And those are the core of what we call, that's where public accommodation law begins. We call these entities common carriers. This is not the only theory of common carrier. There's some other reasons we, we might have rules, special rules for railroads, coaxial cable and, and, a tele, and a telephone line or things like that. There are certain entities that have to serve all comers and they, they are connected with certain often monopoly power in the moment. Well, but there's lots of other commercial activity that's not expressive that uh, I don't think can be defined under that. I mean, what about like selling someone a computer, for example? I mean, that's not something well, so now we're going to do and, 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 in the moment. And here's, right, and here's the point. We didn't start regulating, you know, those folks as common carriers, as public accommodations until very, very late in the day. And what Justice Sotomayor says as the the rule, I say is actually, oh, that's the exception. And I'm for some of these things, these laws, but not when they start to trump expressive rights or privacy rights on the or uh, uh, certain kinds of associational rights on the other side and the kinds of associations that I especially want to protect and the right to speak is also the right not to speak okay not to be forced to say something so the government violates my speech rights when they prohibit me from speaking in a certain way or when they require me to speak in some way like to salute a flag or something and you can say oh that's conduct it's just you know it's it's sticking out your arm or something it's expressive it has a meaning that's why the government is coercing it from me to salute a flag they can't force me to um, put a certain ideological message on my driver's license live free or die because I may not agree with that message. They can't. The right to speak sometimes includes the right not to speak. The right to, of certain kinds of association. I have a right to meet with people and a right not to actually meet with other people. What kind? What's the core of that? I would say at least, and and we sometimes call it association. But I could get it from the First Amendment assembly idea. And what are the assemblies that are that, that are central? I would say they're religious groups, religious assemblies like Assemblies of God, political assemblies like the assembly, the, our convention that generated the, the Constitution. People were assembled in a, in a convention or in a parade or something like that. And certain face-to-face fraternal organizations, certain clubs, um, that those are extension of kind of, um, or, or our family, family and, and friends. So, so I have three loci of special associations. Restaurants aren't that. A circuit city isn't that. It's just they're, they're just a, a big a big box store. You know, Home Depot is not that. But what are particular kinds of associations that the law has special solicitude for to repeat religious entities, political entities and certain family groupings and friendship groupings? When you talk about, you know, groupings, I mean, there have been so throughout American history, there have been sort of fraternal organizations, the Masons right. or or the Kiwanis right. Club, you know, or things like that. And many of the Boy Scouts, which, of course, have been the subject of litigation along these lines um, in the past. Um, so uh, where do you see those as fitting in to, like, can the Boy Scouts, you know, refuse to have, uh, you know, well, can they refuse to have gay members or something like that under this kind of... So, Andy, we did not rehearse this, this part of it. It's so interesting that you ask because the audience, well, their eyes are rolling. We tell another, a Marcus Constitution story. So here's the backstory of 
Boy Scouts versus Dale, which is just about this. Can the Boy Scouts exclude gays? And the answer the Supreme Court says is yes, because they're a fraternal organization of a certain sort. Now, here are all my cards on the table. I grow up in the Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. I mean, I'm very proud of being an Eagle Scout. And one of the reasons I get my clerkship, it was on, I have a one-page resume, and it says, you know, Yale 4.0, Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude, you know, debate team, um, won the prize for best um, uh, student economics. You know, um, it's one page, but these were the things that I had done. You had to get those budget. in there, didn't you? You know, 24. Yes, I do. Yes, you know, but also Eagle Scout, okay? Uh, it's a one-page CV, and you know who hires me? Steve Breyer. You know what? You might not know about Steve Breyer, but it's true. Oh, he's an Eagle Scout. Oh, and, and, um, Neil Armstrong. Oh, Eagle Scout. I think maybe even Anthony Kennedy might be an Eagle Scout. But anyway, I'm proud of this fact. Then they go around discriminating against my gay friends. And because of that, I actually had to disassociate myself from the organization. And this is one of the reasons my son was never in the Scouts because I just didn't want to be part of an organization that did that. And this was very painful to me. Andy, because as a little boy, I'm growing up thinking, oh, one day, you know, if I ever have a son, we can do scouting together. If I have daughters, we can do, you know, girl scouting together or something. But but I don't know as much about that. You know, I dreamed about this, but I wasn't. And it wasn't just this PC thing. Here's the point. I wasn't going to put him in an organization that would kick him out at age 14 if he discovered certain things about his his identity, which you might not know at age 11 when he signs up. I just thought that's a cruel thing to do to an 11-year-old, a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old who's going through all sorts of very complicated issues about understanding who he or she or they um, uh, are in, in this world. But the case, so I thought the Boy Scouts were doing a horrible thing when they excluded gays, but I thought they had a right to do it. And the two lawyers on this side were both dear friends of mine. Their names are Michael McConnell and Evan Wolfson, two of my closer friends in the world. When you come to my office, you will see a picture of, of Evan Wolfson in my office, in fact. He was a friend of mine at Yale College. He mine at Yale. Yes, Yale 78. And he is the Martin King of the same-sex marriage movement. He he founds the Freedom to Marry Project. All honor to him. Tried to help him over the years. I really respect what he's done. And he said, this is illegal, what the Boy Scouts are doing. And I advised him on the case. And I said, here's your best argument. Because I don't want you, if you're going to win, I want you to win on a very, very narrow theory that the Boy Scouts are a unique organization. They're kind of monopolistic. They have all sorts of special government privileges. They meet in schoolhouses and fire stations and, and police stations. And so they shouldn't be treated as just like a private little group. They should be treated as like a, a quasi-governmental monopoly. And so if you win, you win on that narrow theory. And I advised him. On the other side was my dear friend, Michael McConnell. He's a very distinguished professor at Stanford Law School, one of the two most cited scholars by the Supreme Court, who's um, under age 80. And the audience can guess who the other one is. Michael is a conservative, but he clerked for William Brennan. And he argued the other side. And I advised him, too. And and I said, you know, here are the arguments. Should And I had to be very careful because I didn't tell either one what the other had said. And I, I told each one, I'm actually in conversation with the other person. I tried to be a very honest broker. But I actually said, you know, in general, Michael, you know, here's, you know, here are the arguments that there's a, there's a special role for um, not every organization, IBM, General Motors. No, but 
three fossae, religious organizations, political organizations, and maybe four, family and and friend um, organizations, real friends, face-to-face friends. The government can't prevent you from meeting with your friends, nor can it force you whenever you want to meet with the friends that you really want to meet with that everyone else has to be invited to. Mm-hmm. And that is the Boy Scouts versus Dale case. That's the backstory of it. And I actually advise the two great lawyers in the case, Evan Wilson on one side and Michael McConnell on the other. So, you know, as far as this case, then how does this fit into that, you know, continuum of, of cases that we've been talking about? You know, it seems like one of the issues that it would come down to is, is what Ms. Smith wants to do? Is it conduct or is it speech? Um, it might be it might be both, but it's definitely speech. And for me, that's the trumping. Fact. Is it expressive? So, you, right now, of right. course. So, and that brings is us- burning a flag conduct or speech? Because for the longest time, people said, "Oh, it's conduct, so we can regulate." I said, "What are you talking about? What's being objected to is the the message. Because what makes a flag a flag is." The 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 the, um, the 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 colors on the thing that actually have I mean they wouldn't have a meaning to a dog you know um, just a piece of cloth that's being burned if if we're talking about it. but human beings understand that this is a swastika a flag this is a Nazi flag you know this is you know a, a UN flag this is you know a peace symbol flag this is the flag the golden um, bear flag of California this is the Star Spangled Banner well, one um, could and easily yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you could just say, well, you can burn a piece of cloth and no one's going to care. The reason that people care if you're burning the flag is pre- is precisely because it is different from a piece of cloth. And here's now a point, and I, I wrote about all this in the Harvard Law Review about the case called RAV. You're not only allowed to burn a flag if you're a patriot, you're required to in certain contexts. I learned this, and Andy, we didn't rehearse this part. I learned this in the Boy Scouts. When a flag becomes soiled beyond restoration, beyond repair, you're not supposed to throw it in the trash. Okay, Actually, you're supposed to burn it and burn it respectfully. And there's a little ceremony, actually, as you burn it and you pledge allegiance to it or, or do something as a sign of respect. That's actually, I'm not making this up, that's proper flag etiquette if you are a patriot of a certain sort. And I am, and I learned all this. So now... Actually, it's about the difference between burning a flag respectfully, which is perfectly okay, and burning a flag disrespectfully, which is what they were trying to prohibit. And that's all about the message, you see. And that's why there are words like flag desecration, you see. The two cases were a case called United States versus Eichmann and um, Texas versus Johnson. The guy who I think is a jerk. I don't like what he was doing. I hate what he was doing, which is actually, you know, um, burning a flag disrespectfully. I don't like that. But what he actually said as he burned it was, America, the red, white, and blue, we spit on you. Okay, now suppose actually he had spit on the flag, okay? And the government tried to prohibit that. Just as a soda might say, oh, well, that's not speech. That's conduct. That's that's expectoration. That's spinning. You say, no, of, come on, get real. It's you, you can call it anything conduct if you want. But the reason it's being prohibited is people think this is a disrespectful thing that you're doing. It's all about the message you're communicating. And I think you're communicating a heinous message. I also think you have an absolute right to do that. Uh, and the very amendment that gives me a right to spit on the flag 
and I never will, is also the amendment that gives me a right to salute it if I want to. Okay, and they can't prevent me from saluting a flag and they can't make me salute a flag either. I get to choose whether to salute it or not, because I'm a free person with expressive rights. And I don't want them to say, oh, that's not true. If you're a teacher in a private school, but you're getting money, you're holding yourself out. This is public accommodation. And now because of public accommodation, you know, um, you have to um, salute the flag um, because that's what we that's uh, conduct. Well, all we're asking is we don't even ask you to say anything. You just have to put your hand over your heart and stand up and that. That, that's just conduct. You see, oh, it's standing. It's, it's moving your hand in a certain way. And I would say, no, no, no. Read the Barnett case. Read Woolley versus Maynard. These are cases about, exp- read Texas versus Johnson. And you can call it conduct if you want, but expressive conduct is intrinsically different. And serving up someone a pizza is not expressive conduct in any ordinary sense. Or letting them, y- you know, use your, the urinal. Or sleep on a bed. Drink a beverage because they're dehydrated and, and they, they need to get some fluids. Those are not expressive things. And we have public accommodation laws at the, for just those sorts of things, especially. You know, I think that when I, as I read the opinion on both sides, uh, in this and, and some of these other cases, one of the things that, that uh, the justices concern themselves with is people trying to uh, use the what might be sometimes subtle lines to sort of skirt uh, the, the the intent here. So, so for example, uh, you might say, well, you have a public you have a public accommodation law that requires you to serve, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches to everybody, regardless of whether they're black or white. Okay, but what about if you have a grilled cheese sandwich and you write on it, you know, I don't like blacks or something. And you write that on every grilled cheese sandwich that you serve or something like that. You know, can, can you, is it, does that make it expressive? Um, Does that make the serving of the grilled cheese sandwich expressive such that you could then say, well, you know, I, I don't want to serve this to any black people because I'm, you know, this is a, this is an expression of mine or something like that. Um, and you know, so, so, I mean, that's not a very good example, I guess, but no, it's a great example and it's a hard example. And my position might be, if I'm really smart on the other side, I don't let you do that to me. I take the thing and I say, this is delicious, you know, because it doesn't matter, you know, what, what you wrote in ketchup on the inside. And I might take it and it might actually, you know, destroy your little message as I eat it in front of you and say, yum, yum, yum. Now, if you did something else, if you spit in the thing and you didn't do that for the hamburgers you served to light-skinned people, and just in case the audience has missed it, I'm a dark-skinned person. I have been denied, you know, I, I know what it's like, actually. When I am born, there are places in America that would not let me eat or drink or poop or pee or sleep, and they would let, actually, there were hotels, they would let dogs in literally with their owners, but they wouldn't let me in. That's in my lifetime. There were places in America that did that. So I, I'm not hallucinating here. If I'm being clever, I might say, okay, well, you put that, you, you wrote a nasty message, you know, with, with the mustard or something. I take the bun and, and you I give it to me open face. I put the, you know, the, the top on and I smush it all around and it tastes just, but if you actually gave me a different kind of burger, 
That has nothing to do with the, the message that uh, has everything to do with um, the, the, the meat or the, Andy, I think I told you this story uh, before, but I'll share it with the audience. This is, this is from um, The Simpsons. Um, this is one of Vic's favorite episodes. It's Krusty the Clown, and they have a promotion that you get a special um, lottery ticket when you buy a Krusty burger, and one in every 10, uh, no, one in every 50 uh, gives you a free, a right to a, a free burger the next time you go to Krusty. But instead of one in every 50, it turns out to be one in every two. So they screwed up. So this is going to bankrupt the franchise. And Krusty says, can we just, you know, um, I goes to the lawyers and they, and they, and he says, can we revoke this? They say, no, a deal's a deal. Okay. So he goes on television and he says, my lawyers tell me that I've got to honor these stupid tickets. Okay. I'm going to honor them. But I personally guarantee that if you come and bring one of these tickets, I'm going to spit in every 10th burger, you know, where a ticket is presented. And Homer's watching, you know, on television. He says, I like those odds. <laughs> so, um, but you know, you can't spit in the um, burger. But if the only thing that you're doing actually is trying to communicate a certain disrespectful message to certain people, that's a hard case. Truthfully, I might say you still uh, the public accommodations law still wins because actually, unless it's a very special kind of um, burger joint, a Chuck E. Cheese or something, it's grilled cheeses. Uh, restaurants are not about expression. They're not newspapers. They're not websites. They're not singers or dancers or photographers. They're places where you get food. Now, if it's food and the show, you see, now it's starting to look possibly a little different. And if there's the show, a play, are you allowed to have a racist or a homophobic play that you put on? I actually think you are. I'm never going to go to it, but I think we can't shut you down. And at that play, are you allowed to um, sell popcorn? I think it would be pretty tyrannical um, and First Amendment violative to say, oh, we'll let you sell popcorn, but only if we approve the message of your play. And, and then we say, oh, we are not regulating what you say at all. We're just regulating you know, the popcorn. No, you're regulating the popcorn because you don't like the play. Right. And, well, and to me, that's that's where the First Amendment comes into operation. So, you know, the dissent sounds like it's uh, largely concerned with a, a message of disrespect, you know, and exclusion that's being conveyed when a service is denied. And, you know, that sounds a little bit like it comes from, you know, Brown and, and Bowling versus Sharp, you know, but, but obviously it's a little bit different situation. But you know, they seem to imply that, you know, Ms. Smith is denying services to gays uh, simply because she wishes to demean them, not because she doesn't want to avoid expressing something that she doesn't believe in. So not to, you know, because she wants to actively be, you know, hurtful. See, the, the, is, this is the biggest point of all. She is not the government. She's allowed to demean them. Brown and Bowling and, and Obergefeld are about the respect that government owes every citizen and every citizen equally on the basis of birth status, individuals do not owe that. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just so we're really they're allowed to be demeaning. So if you these are going to sound harsh, but there is a right to discriminate. If you are a religious person, you're allowed to believe, and some many religious people do believe that their religion is right, and other religions therefore are 
not right or wrong and are um, maybe even deeply wrong. And they're allowed to actually have demeaning attitudes toward other religions. Most heterosexuals, not bisexuals, but just heterosexuals, discriminate. They are romantically involved in one sex and, and not the other sex. And even if they have horrible views about this or that or the other thing, they are allowed to. And so I absolutely see where Justice Sotomayor is coming from, and I'm disagreeing with her at the most fundamental level because I think she and others are making a fundamental category mistake. They keep talking about equality, equality, equality. That's, in general, a right against the government and not a right against individuals. And then the question is, when do we actually say individuals are kind of like the government for certain purposes, such that they owe a certain a special duty? And I'm saying, oh, I get it when it comes to a pub, a public house, because actually um, we're giving you a special responsibility to serve the public in certain ways where markets don't work and the like. One of the, the, the reasons I'm comfortable, our Constitution is comfortable with a private right to discriminate is there's, there's lots of people. And, and if you don't like a discriminator, don't do business with that person. And as just to repeat what I said several times, um, I'm not going to actually ever buy a cake from that bigoted baker because if he's not willing to do a wedding cake um, for my gay friends who want a, a wedding, then, you know, he's not good enough for my business. I'll say it one other way because I've actually been asked by people who became my very close friends. I'm not going to embarrass them by giving them their names, but they, but they listen to this podcast regularly. And they invited me to be part of their wedding uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe close to two years ago now. And that was a great honor to be part of their wedding. I actually did a book reading, believe it or not, Andy, at this event. And what this woman does for a living, she takes money for it to be sure, um, but, but people are allowed to, to charge for things that, that are expressive and that also give them joy and are in, intrinsically human connected. They, they're part of the, the, the wedding, so to speak, of the marriage. They're, they're creating something. They're using their own mind and heart and soul and artistry to basically say, I endorse this. I'm part of your special day. And if they, and if they don't believe that, they're allowed to, just as they're allowed to not marry someone that they don't want to marry or to not preside over a marriage ceremony that they don't want to preside in. And and some of them might even be demeaning. We can criticize them, and we should, if that's their attitude, um, but they have a right to demean others. The First Amendment gives them that right. Well, um, of course, the argument is made that, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not making the argument, but I'm yeah. relaying yeah. the arguments. Yes. Um, that part of the purpose of public accommodation laws is to assure a certain dignity in the marketplace. Um, now, you're saying that that yields to the degree that it exists um, when expression comes in. But you right, could because see- the Constitution has certain values, and that value is not, even though it's, a, it's significant, it is not on the same register. It, it's not in the Constitution the way rights against the government are in the Constitution. There's only one part of the Constitution that really has a strong, strong 
application against private individuals is the 13th Amendment. One private person is not allowed to enslave another private person. And you could read that pretty broadly about badges of servitude that might be specially about certain kinds of racial demeaning. But at a certain point, you know, you can't read it so broadly that you're enslaving individuals by regulating who they can be. Now, there are certain lines that that uh, are raised by this kinds of these kinds of arguments. So, for example, um, we we've talked about a line between you know expression, what's expression, what's what's conduct that is different from expression. Like you've said, some conduct actually is expression, but what conduct is not expression? So that's that's one line that that and, this, and, that and, this and case. Hang on, just on that. Hang on, on just that. Um, let me because the wedding cake case was almost had a law professorial beauty to it. And I want to get it out there because I think my friend Elaine, this was about five years ago, just missed the whole thing. And she's a First Amendment expert, but actually so am I. And we disagree and we can't both be right because we're saying different things. So here's what the wedding cake guy said. He said, I'll sell a gay couple a cake off the shelf. You know, you want a cake? I got lots of cakes. And you can put whatever message you want on the top of the cake, okay? But if you want a wedding cake, that's a different thing. That's expressive. Now you're asking me to come up with um, the, the, a special kind of um, uh, uh, artistic design and, and a message. And part of the message is implicitly, inherently, I, Baker X, approve this wedding this this marriage um and and you can't make me say that if i don't really believe that and here's so so the baker was distinguishing between cakes and wedding cakes now here's two or three ways of of cashing that out because this is this is the way where you draw the line a dog can't i keep you know going back to dogs because dogs don't understand actually they might a little bit they sometimes recognize their name or something like that but you know um, they don't understand the difference between a, a cake and a wedding cake or between a flag and um a piece of cloth in general or if it's not a dog pick pick some some um, someone from another country someone who doesn't speak the language who's not aware of the the, the cultural communicative um messages another way of saying that point is and I, I said restaurants, oh, they are public accommodations because you need to eat. And, 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 and there's an emergency when your kids need to eat and you just find a place quickly and they better serve you. Now, um, there's almost never a wedding cake emergency, truth be told. And where there is, you can just get a cake and you can put your own message on top. So this is a Marcus Constitution. I'm going to tell you two stories. One of my best friends from high school, her name is um, Nancy Myers. My other best friend from high school, Kevin King and I, we made her a wedding cake as our gift for her wedding. And and we put ourselves into it. Okay. Now, when we got married, and 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 Kevin is an amazing um artist in in, in many ways, and, and his art um went into that. I, um I just turned uh, 65 uh, last week. So Kevin, if you're out there listening, I'm happy belated birthday. Now, when Venita and I got married, since we're total tight wads, you know what we did? We went to stop and shop. We got a sheet cake. That was our wedding cake, and it was just fine. Thank you. Well, congratulations. But uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how that really bears on this case. But anyway, other than to be a good story. It's about the, because you can make it into a wedding cake, and it's about the message that you put on it. And Elena Kagan didn't see the basic distinction between just a retail cake 
and um, a bespoke, tailor-made, custom-made wedding cake that's all about the message. It's not about the sugar and the flour. Um, well, you uh, could go further, I think. You know, you could say, look, it's a wedding. It's special. It's, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully, uh, event. And um, therefore, you're going to engage the services of a very special wedding cake designer right. that's, uh, you know, and that is known for really, you know, not, not just cake, but in this case, perhaps, you know, website, let's say, right. um, that's known for really, you know, sprucing it up and, and uh, you know, this and that. So, so you're actually appealing to that person's creativity because Correct. you couldn't just Artistic use anybody. Creativity. You know, but, what is it that but, makes them special? So right. the message you know, um, not, it's not just, you know, because the same sugar and flour in a different sake, it, cake, it's, it's the message that you're, that you're inviting them to contribute. And, and if they don't agree with that, you have to let them opt out and, and go elsewhere. Now, so, so anyway, so these lines come up. And so this case, um, remember before I said that the case appeared to be a little bit groomed. Um, and part of the way that it seems groomed was that there were all sorts of stipulations that were made uh, by Ms. Smith and the state, by the way. That's the point. The state was in on this. They wanted a certain fight and they got the fight they wanted and they lost and they deserve to lose because they have the wrong constitutional vision. Okay. Okay. I, I get it. But, but let's just talk about the stipulations for a minute. So, so first of all, one of the stipulations, and this is you know right in the opinion, is that all of the graphic and website design services Ms. Smith provides are, quote, expressive, unquote. Yes. So yes. now you have this as a stipulation. Um, and, you know, in the opinion, the, let's say, take the majority opinion, the, the majority accepts the stipulation. It doesn't really do anything with it other than to say that every time someone makes an argument that it's not expressive, they say, well, what about the fact that they stipulated that it's expressive? Um, so, so they're just accepting that. But the problem is that um, if, if you're looking at this case as a model for behavior, one of the things, the reasons that Ms. Smith wanted to, to do this, you said, was because she wants a piece of paper that says, you know, here's something you can do. But from the point of view of other proprietors that aren't Ms. Smith, they also want that piece of paper and they would like the piece of paper to be a list of guidelines or, or some reasoning on the part of the court that explains how you can tell where the line between expressive and, and not expressive or, you know, extra expressive conduct or whatever you want to call it, you know, is uh, so that they know where this public accommodation law might apply to them and where they might be free to, you know, discriminate. Uh, and the court doesn't really go very far towards accomplishing that. And I would say, before you respond, that that's actually a bit of a danger of the stipulation because, you know, you're not, you don't really read about that in the media very much. I haven't read a lot of discussion of that. And so the impression in the public is that the court has actually clarified something which maybe it hasn't clarified. Brilliant point. Um, now, again, the, the state wanted to have a certain fight. They got the fight they wanted, and they got their butts kicked. You know, when I say, you know, uh, justifiably, 
But I think it would have been even better if the court had said, yes, even the government concedes this, and here's why they were right in conceding mm-hmm. it. They had to concede it because here's what actually makes it expressive. I think this is an easy case because it is so obviously expressive. Um, in in uh, the New Testament, Jesus at a certain point is they say, well, you know, are you the king of the Jews or something? And he says, thou sayest which means like you said it, you know, not me. I mean, you're conceding this. You know, he's telling the authorities, you, you know, you're the ones who. So in this case, yes, the government conceded it and the court relied on that and they're allowed to do that. But yes, it might have been even better if they said the government stipulated this and here's why we think that that was actually a completely correct um, and sensible stipulation on that part because they're going to be hard cases this is not one of them because this is a website with words about ideas um, and, and, and important big ideas like love and commitment and, and, and marriage, some of the biggest ideas in the human realm. Again, see, dogs don't have a wedding ceremony. So this is deeply expressive. Um, and the court maybe could have gone a little further in explaining why this is so different than a grilled cheese sandwich. Mm-hmm. Now, there always are going to be close cases. Um, and this is, again, a Mars theory of, of, of law. Here's, do you know, Andy, I think I may have said this before, you know what the difference between night and day is? It's, it's dawn, dawn and dusk. And dusk yes. yes. The, the difference you between black and white. Yeah, the, the difference between black and white is various shades of gray. So here's the best that you can do, in my view, in law, in general. You can identify... The easy case on one side and the easy case on the other. The easy case of unconstitutionality, this one. The easy case of constitutionality, the grilled cheese sandwich. They're always going to be now, oh, but what about a grilled cheese sandwich where someone writes, you know, a, a message in the ketchup or something? That's always going to happen. You know, Yogi Berra, you know, famously said, oh, if we could just move first place, one foot, we get rid of all the close places. They're always going to be close places. And the way litigation naturally works is at a certain point, you know, we identify at least one case on each side, and then we actually work our way toward a line. And And sometimes the line is going to have a certain crispness to it. Um, sometimes it's that's just it's in the nature of things, not true. When does someone become bald? At what point? Well, that, that's, see, that's a continuum. It's, it's not so, so easy to, to specify the point at which someone is bald or not. But this one seems... And here's what Justice Sotomayor, and I, and I adore her. I really do. She knows that. Human to human, we disagree about because when I say where it's expressive as well as involving a certain conduct, you know, to me, often the expression, the expressive element constitutionally trumps because from a certain point of view, name me an expression that doesn't involve some action, um, um, an inhaling, um, an exhaling, uh, uh, a moving, a movement of a hand, uh, clicking on a typewriter, using a laser printer, a uh, burning a flag. So they're, uh, saluting, there's always going to be something that could be described as conduct. But there are things that I think are pretty easy cases of inclusion generating words you know that convey a certain idea that's what the website is about that seems pretty easy to me this was an easy case the three justices got wrong one of whom is a first amendment scholar 
And it was needlessly, and that's Elena Kagan, it it seems needlessly political because it looks like it's liberals versus conservatives. But I promise you, and I'm not going to out them now, I've talked to many people over the years on this set of issues, many classical liberal folk, maybe not hard leftists, but, but mainstream Democrat ACLU types, they're on my side of this. Uh, the main cases that are being invoked, cases like Barnett involving flag salute, Woolley versus Maynard, um, these were great Warren and pre-Warren court victories by the, the free speech folks. Now, speaking of Barnett, Barnett is cited by the majority in this case, and well, it should be. Um, but it brings up another another issue. Before, But just for a moment before I, I get to that, I just want to dispose of something else about the stipulations. Um, so uh, here's an important stipulation, I think. She, Ms. Smith is, is willing to work with all people, regardless of classifications, such as race, creed, sexual orientation, and gender, and she will gladly create custom graphics and websites for clients of any sexual orientation. So in other words, she'll provide... So some of this comes down to a definition of what her services are. Um, But she'll, you know, from her point of view, she will provide her services equally, you know, to, uh, you know, regardless of the, the identity of the client, but she considers, you know, a wedding website for a heterosexual marriage to be a different service than a wedding website for a homosexual marriage, um, I think is what she would probably say if you asked her about that. So, and, you know, there's some disagreement, obviously, in the in the dissent on that. But, uh, and also... And, and, from, and, and, and from my point of view, I'm not that interested in whether her position is perfectly analytically coherent. She's allowed, as a human being, with rights against the government, to have positions that I think are silly or incoherent. Um, the government has to have a coherent position. Individuals, not so much. They may have to have a sincere position. Just to finish this this one point. The, but in terms of her symmetry that she claims, I mean, it sounds like you're saying she does, she's not really required to be all that symmetrical um, right. to, to, the, to the degree that expression is involved. But what she's saying is that to the degree expression is not involved, then she is symmetrical. Um, sure. And so, for example, yes. she says that if a gay couple came in to purchase a wedding website for a heterosexual couple, like as a gift, let's say. Right. She would, she would do that. Right. Or if she's got two businesses, she, you know, sells grilled cheese sandwiches and she'll sell them to anyone black or white, you know, or green male or female, gay or straight, you know, that's, that's her cheeseburger business, but this is a different thing. This is her, and it might very well be that she has two kinds of websites and, and one she'll, she'll cater to anyone, but the wedding website is different because she's got special ideas about weddings. And just to repeat, I'm never going to give her my business, but she's allowed to have her views. In reading about the case, you know, some of her uh, her reasons, she's not really required, what you're saying, is to, to yeah. have a reason, but sort of reminiscent of the Bruin case in that sense. But, um, but Yeah, it is reminiscent of the Bruin case a little bit, you know, when the government tries to say, well, do you have a good enough reason to have a gun? And, you know, do you have a good enough reason to have a toaster, to have a, a fishing rod or something? Mm, uh, that makes me sometimes a little nervous. Right. But, but nevertheless, um, there's been some, some coverage of the fact that her, you know, she has these beliefs and, 
uh, and their religious beliefs. But you can mm-hmm. understand where she could have those beliefs and they wouldn't be religious beliefs. Right. Um, okay, so so that raises the question of what kind of a case is this? Now, you've characterized it as a basically a First Amendment, uh, well, it could be a First Amendment case either way, but it's the, it's a free expression rather than a, right. a, a free exercise. I, I think um, and the clauses that I've invoked, most of all, are speech. Sometimes they've talked about press. See, a printing press doesn't make grilled cheese sandwiches. It makes a certain expressive thing. Typically, it's pressing ink on a paper, and the ink is a message, okay? And um, and if I don't speak the language, it doesn't mean anything to me. And that's p- how I tell in part. I draw a line. It's expressive. So I talk about speech. Okay, but not everything that comes out of um, one's mouth gets full protection. You know, if I'm screaming my lungs out and and waking people up um, in the middle of the night, I I can say, well, this is speech and say, no, we're not going after you for what you're, you know, the content of what you're saying. We're going after you for your decibel level. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I mentioned speech. Press, printing press is about, you know, intrinsic. And that's what a a website is. It's a modern printing press. That's exactly what it is, it seems to me. That's why this is a pretty easy case. And I've also mentioned assembly. See, there there are six clauses of the the First Amendment. Um, Speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise, establishment. And so I've emphasized three of them. Speech, press, which is intrinsically um, expressive product, as opposed to grilled cheese sandwiches, and also assembly. And each time I said the right to do X is also the right to refuse to do X. You know, I have a right to speak or not speak. You can't prohibit me from speaking. You can't make me, compel me to have a certain kind of utter an opinion. I have a right to have a printing press or not have a printing press. You can't make me have one. I have a right to assemble with other folks and a right not to assemble or associate. In certain contexts, I've identified three or four, especially church, politics, family, close friends or friendship groups. Okay. And you mentioned church, but still, uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, bring up the way that this case has been covered in part. And so here's, I just want to read you the first, the opening of an op-ed that appeared in the New York Times on July 8th, so just a couple days ago, by our friend Kate Shaw, who has appeared on this podcast, and we thank her for, for doing so. Um and uh, it was very helpful. We talked a lot about John Paul Stevens, et cetera. And uh, anyway, so she, so the title of this uh, op-ed, and we have to keep in mind that she may have not written the title, um, is The Supreme Court's Disorienting Elevation of Religion. And here's how she starts the, the op-ed. This term, the Supreme Court decided two, t- two cases involving religion. Groff versus DeJoy was a relatively low-profile case about religious accommodations at work. 303 Creative versus Ellenus was a blockbuster case about the clash between religious exercise and principles of equal treatment. The legal question was technically about speech, but religion was at the core of the dispute. In both cases, plaintiffs asserted religiously grounded objections to complying with long-standing and well-settled laws or rules that would otherwise apply to them. And in both, the court handed the plaintiff a resounding victory. Okay, so it goes on, but uh, I think, you know, you get the idea. So to me, that's not really how I, w- how I would read this case. I mean, your reaction. It wasn't technically about speech. It was entirely about speech. 
you know, start to finish, full stop. And then in the parenthesis, she actually corrected the misimpression by saying, oh, well, actually, you know, she said that was, well, it's technically. Um, so it had nothing to do with religion analytically. And that's important because of what the case stands for going forward. Going forward, it will protect bigoted people, whether or not they're religious bigots or mere cultural bigots. OK, and, and I'm allowed to call her a bigot. OK, that's my free expression. Now, here's another thing. I, I read the piece um, um, there were two cases and she said, uh, she mentioned the Groff case. Well, here's something she never told us about the Groff case. It was unanimous, you see. Um, and, and, and she thinks that that one was wrong too, but it was unanimous. Now this one was six, three, and you might think, well, it's the conservatives versus the liberals. And I'm saying that's not true in the academy more broadly. I know lots and lots of free speech free press experts who are on my side of this and they're card-carrying members of the Democratic Party, okay? So, and to repeat, I actually think this one was an easy case, not a hard one. And somehow we're in a world where everything gets kind of um, polarized and this is a victim of, of that polarization because when you step way back, again, suppose the facts had been very different. It's Someone wants to um, in, in the wedding cake because this is just the wedding cake revisited. And, and she was on the other side was Kate of the wedding cake one. And I thought that was easy. And Elena was, in my view, on the wrong side of that. And if someone says to the baker, I want you to put a swastika on the, the this cake for a special party I'm having with, with my pals. It's a special occasion. And we want you to make the special cake and put a swastika on it. I say, and I'd say, no, I don't do swastikas. I'll sell you a cake and you can put the damn thing on yourself. I can't stop you from doing that, but I will not do a swastika. You can't make me do that. That would be true whether my objection to a swastika is religious or political or moralistic or actually irrational. I don't have to have a reason. I don't do swastikas. Right. Of course, this law, by the way, you know, swastikas, Nazis are not a protected class, but under the under this law but i get the i get the point and the, and part of the reason that i mentioned this was you you know earlier we mentioned barnett and the court cites barnett now barnett actually has something to do with religion uh in much the way that this has to do with religion well andy hang on just that, on protected class suppose now i'm a photographer now this is a little trickier but there's an art in this and and i'll do artistic photographs and you're going to pay me for this. I'm really good. Uh, Annie Leibovitz or something. Some, some really great photographer. But I'm a woman and I actually do nudes. That's what I do. But I only want to photograph women. I, I just, I've got nothing against men as such, but, but this is what I want to do. You know, it's my um, art and, um, and you're going to pay me because I'm really good at what I do. I'll make you look beautiful. Oh, um, but I only want to do it for women. Am I not allowed to do that? I believe in black power. Black is beautiful, I believe. And I'm a photographer. And I only want to photograph the beauty of um, my fellow blacks. I'm, I'm allowed to do that. And you can't turn me into some cog of the state, an instrument of, of only state-approved messages of 
equality. Individuals are allowed to discriminate in various ways in their speech act and otherwise. Well, the court gives an example of a speechwriter, you know, that a speechwriter surely can't be compelled to write speeches for, you know, causes that he disagrees with. Right. And, 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 disagrees and but they would with. say just what you did to me. Right. Well, that's not, not a protected, protected class. But it could be but, a protected class if a, you know, if, if a, let's say, uh, if, let's say that Ms. Smith was a speechwriter and uh, some and someone wanted her to write a speech, a, a wedding toast, right? Um, you know, for for you know a gay couple, and said, "No, I don't, I don't want to do." You know, but just from, from you know the well, anyway. Okay. Put it a different way, because actually the category of public accommodation is mushrooming. Why not the category of protected class? Okay, so this is you know sex, sexual orientation, race, creed. You know wh- why not political um, disability? Why not political point of view? See, so and once you see now, it can't be political point of view. You can't make me say something that politically I I think is is loathsome. You're seeing the problem. The problem is not with this bigoted woman. It's with too broad a conception of public accommodation law and. Colorado, this is they got the fight they wanted because they have the wrong view. And so do the dissenters. They don't understand. Basically, it's rights against the government and the Constitution. It's equality principles do not, as a general proposition, apply against individuals. And, and to miss that, that's the, at the heart of the case. And I'm going to interpret rights somewhat expansively. The Ninth Amendment encourages me to read rights expansively. So when it's a mixed case of, you know, expression and conduct, I'm often going to side with the expression component because I'd rather err on the side of a broad understanding of, to repeat, these cluster of three, at least, First Amendment rights of speech, press, and assembly, and I actually didn't think it was about religion, truth be told. Right. Well, and again, I think Barnett is a good example of it of it seeming like it's about religion, but maybe not, and uh, and really not. So here's what the court says. This is how they cite Barnett. They say in Barnett, the court faced an effort by the state of West Virginia to force school children to salute the nation's flag and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. If the students refused, the state threatened to expel them and fine or jail their parents. Some families objected on the ground that that the state sought to compel their children to express views at odds with their faith as Jehovah's Witnesses. When the dispute dispute arrived here, this court offered a firm response. In seeking to compel students to salute the flag and recite a pledge, the court held, state authorities had transcended constitutional limitations on their powers. Their dictates invaded the sphere of intellect and spirit, which is the purpose of the First Amendment, to reserve from all official control. So, freedom of thought, whether religious or not. The Gobitis case was written by Justice Frankfurt and it upheld this sort of tyranny. It was reversed shortly thereafter in the Barnett case. Remember, this is one of many, many examples, Solicitor General Prelogger, of actually not following stare decisis because the case is wrong. But when it was reversed, it was reversed on speech grounds. Frankfurter, who had written the initial opinion in Gabaitis, dissented, and he didn't really realize. He just kept treating it as if it was a religion case. You know, he says, well, you, you know, religion shouldn't get special, you know, treatment. And the majority, written by the great Justice Jackson, this is one of the great opinions of all time. It's, it's, it's up there in the pantheon. 
Jackson's opinion wasn't about religion as such. It was about compelled speech more generally and conscience. And my friend Kate, our friend Kate, is making the exact same mistake Frankfurter did when she keeps describing this as about religion when it's about speech more broadly. Okay, so you might say, well, you know, okay, we've sort of beaten this to death. How much more is there to say about it? But in fact, I think there's there are fair, there's a fair amount to talk about um, uh, because um, the dissent makes some other arguments, cites some other cases that are that are interesting. Um, also, the idea of applying strict scrutiny analysis under certain circumstances here um, is an interesting one, which we didn't get into. Um, so, and also, I think it would be good to get another voice on this. So next week, uh, or in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have another episode on this with an expert. Um, and why don't you tell us a little bit about the expert? I may not mention the expert's name, just a little suspense, but a great, great First Amendment scholar and constitutional scholar more generally. And since you mentioned, you know, you just hinted that some cases that Justice Sotomayor and dissent cites, I think she has one case that's a strong case against my point of view and needs to be either distinguished or, or, or in effect, critiqued. That's a case called Runyon versus McCrary. We're going to talk about it. So, yes, there's a lot more to talk about. And the audience has heard me, um, but I want them to get at least one other point of view. And I don't know whether this person is going to agree with me down the line or not. We will see. The person is a, a prominent a person left of center in general. Not, not, this is not a, a conservative we're going to have. We're going to have a very distinguished scholar um, of the First Amendment who's written a lot about this. Give us the benefit of that scholar's uh, take on all of this. Um, and we're going to uh, obviously talk about, as we mentioned in the next couple of weeks, I don't know which one we'll do, we'll um, upload first, the uh, affirmative action cases with the great Jeffrey Branzell. Okay, so coming attractions. And and more still, we believe it or not, we still haven't talked about Allen versus Milligan, the voting rights case. So and the, and and there's other things to talk about it also. So all right, so we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.